Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you being empowered with knowledge so you can keep more of what you have. Our website's clark.com and clarkdeals.com. A few months ago, I told you about a new retail chain called Pop Shelf. Pop Shelf is owned by the Dollar General people, who have been one of the nation's fastest-growing retailers. But Dollar General uh, typically is geared towards people who are uh, trying to stretch every dollar on practical everyday items. But they've recognized that there's a big portion of the marketplace that's looking for deals, but not necessarily on things that they got to have or practical items, things that would be fun to have. And people who specialize in this part of retail have looked with envy at the fast growth of the retailer called Five Below that itself after a a way rapid period of growth has now hit a bit of indigestion in their operation but they have been a real factor in retail. My uh, oldest daughter recently got a new phone, new cell phone. And it was funny because the person at the cell phone store was asking if she wanted a case and screen protector. And uh, she knew that that was not where she wanted to get one because that day you want to protect your phone across the street was a five below. She went to five below and got a case for $5.55, and a screen protector was the same price. In the cell phone store, the equivalent stuff was $70 total for the two things versus $11.10. And so there are these price point retailers that are having big impact. So Dollar General, seeing what has gone on with Five Below, has opened... Uh, experimental locations of pop shelf which is generally items of one to five dollars and the sales have been much better than they had hoped for and now they're going to open them as quick as they can and dollar tree um i i may have mentioned this briefly once before but dollar tree is opening several hundred stores that are going to be stores that are geared towards items that generally are, uh, surprise, surprise, geared towards a $5 price point instead of a dollar. If you're a regular Dollar Tree shopper, which I've always been, the problem in Dollar Tree is that with uh, the cost of goods that Dollar Tree imports very heavily, having gone up so much, the quantity sizes that you buy per each dollar going down and some of the goods they used to carry they can't carry anymore and that's leading to this move towards having stores with these higher price points zach is with us on the clark howard show zach 
Yes, sir. How are you doing? How are you, Mr. I'm great, and yourself? Big Wonderful, fan. Wonderful, thank you. Yeah, so, um, Clark, uh, I recently started a new job about 14 months ago. It was a uh, different uh, industry, and I kind of jumped in with both feet. I knew a little bit about what I would make, but wasn't sure on the full scope of things. And it's been a good year. So my question is on the Roth IRA. I, I've, I've kind of taken what you've given me and I've, I've kind of jumped in with both feet. And I went ahead and put the $6,000 lump sum into my Roth IRA. But the issue is I may have overstepped that because I my adjusted gross income may be over the contribution limit. And I'm worried about the tax implications. Yeah, that is a problem. And what normally happens in a case where you contribute to the Roth in the same year that you're earning the income is you're going to have to reverse that Roth. And normally what you would do is you would put it instead into a non-deductible IRA, which is a weirdo creature very few people know exists because they know about you know a traditional IRA, they know about Roth IRAs, but almost no one's ever heard of a non-deductible IRA. So if you end up in a year where you've had um, a good problem, you earn more than what you were permitted to put into, you know, that prevents you from putting money in a Roth, contact the company and tell them that you've out-earned the Roth limits and you need to have that money moved into a non-deductible IRA. Non-deductible, okay. And so right, what so that not- means is that you don't get a deduction on your taxes like you would with a traditional IRA. You don't get tax-free growth like you would in a Roth. But wait, there's more. Do you have any money sitting in a traditional IRA? Yes. How large a pile do you have in a traditional? A small pile. All right. So what you are allowed to do is you can convert that to a Roth, regardless of your income, and pay tax on converting it to a Roth. Since you've had a really good money year, you should be able to cover Uh that tax. Okay. And then you're allowed to virtually immediately take the non-deductible IRA and convert it into a Roth. It's one of the weirdest things about tax law that here you're not allowed to contribute to a Roth But if you do what's referred to in the lingo of the trade, a backdoor Roth, you can contribute each year to the non-deductible and then almost immediately convert that to a Roth and you get around the income limits. Okay. But Um, you must... Does it have to be done before the tax, the the year or the tax year? No, it doesn't have to be. You can do it whenever. So... The important thing, though, is that any money in a traditional IRA, you've got to go ahead and do the hard work of converting it to a Roth, the hard work being you have to pay tax on all the money in it. But you do that, then each year that you are earning this great money, you can put money, the 6000 into the non-deductible, and then almost immediately or at your leisure convert it into Roth money. Awesome. Did I did Thank I just so much. did I just confuse you completely or you got it? Um, a little bit, but uh, you know what? Uh, I'll figure it out. Okay, you could go on investopedia.com and okay. uh, research backdoor Roth, and they'll explain the process to you. Or you could just Google okay. backdoor Roth, and it'll explain okay. to you 
the process. It sounds confusing, but once you know what the two steps are you have to do, you're good, and you won't have to worry about the income limits anymore. Okay, but the best news, best news of all, Zach, you made all that money you weren't expecting to make. (laughs) That's right, yes, sir. That's really good stuff. Jeffrey's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Clark. How are you doing? Great. Thank you, Jeffrey. How can I be of service to you? Well, I uh, I have cut my monthly payments by $1,000 a month since um, June. Wait, 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 wait. Let me see if I followed that right. Your monthly expenses are down by $1,000? Actually, actually, a little bit more than that. So I thought your listeners might be interested to know how I did it. I want to hear. I mean... This is fantastic. Well, the, the key to it is is that my house is fully paid for. Okay, so I, I wouldn't have been able to do it if I had to fight a mortgage every month. Okay? Okay. But in June, I started getting my state pension here in Connecticut, which was a big help. And then I, um, I took your advice, and I, I got a solar system, solar electric system installed in my house which I got for free, by the way, uh, for, through a government program. And really? that cut my bills by 90 a month, which is, a, you know, that was a big plus. I also, the Medicare also pays my YMCA fee every month, which saved me 50. And the third thing is, this is just in the spring, I sold my truck and that cut insurance and repairs by about 150. So I took that savings in the spring, and I paid off four credit cards in the summer and early fall. They didn't have big balances, but I did clean them up, and that cut my expenses even more. And then another thing I've been listening to on your show is how people have been cutting their um, cable bill. Well, I, I didn't go down as far as I could have, but I did cut it down by about 150 a month, which was huge okay you like tv a lot don't you (laughs) well that that included um that was also home security and also internet so it wasn't just uh, okay it wasn't just tv so it was it it had the whole Uh the whole ball of wax okay and then i started i negotiated with some of my other remaining credit cards to lower rates which was another savings of probably about 200 a month. And this is a little trick I learned, which people might be interested in. I have oil heat, but I keep the oil heat down to about 55. And then I use the space heaters to, you know, keep my bedroom. So I don't have to heat the whole house. I'll try to keep the house in, at around 55 or 58. And then I'll use a space heater just to heat my my bedroom or the TV room. Okay, so, so a couple a of, of things. A couple of things I got to say about that. All right. First of all, yep. New Englanders are hardier than the rest of us across the country. Uh, 55 degrees, you know, a lot of people around the country are like, I'm not going below 70 degrees. What are you thinking? And so that shows a toughness on your part. The other thing that people outside New England aren't generally aren't familiar with is what an incredible cost it is if you have oil-based heating in your home. It's a brutal expense. And so you are able to make a huge difference 
in your monthly budget simply by reducing how much oil-based heat you're having to provide? Well, since I have a solar system in my house for electricity, I can use my space heaters at a pretty low cost. So right now I'm in my bedroom and, um, you know, it's, I have the space heater on and it's perfectly comfortable, even though I have the, you know, the heat in the house very low. Well, what I'm impressed about, everybody comes at this from a different standpoint and how they reduce expenses. And you looked at where all your money was going and you attacked the various expenses and now you have generated a thousand new dollars that stays in your wallet every month. And that's fantastic. You know, I just hope for people that they can find a thousand found dollars a year and you found a thousand a month. Although I'm telling you, a lot of people are going to shake their heads on the 55 degrees. But I'm smiling on that. I like that. I try that at home. I'll be kicked out of the house within, well, about an hour. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Rihanna's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, how are you? Wonderful, thank you. How can I be of service to you today? Well, I am trying to save for a down payment, and I was wondering what is the best way to maximize that? Where should I be putting this money? I was leaning towards an index fund because it just seems like Traditional savings accounts or CDs might be too conservative. I have some flexibility of when I'm looking to buy, maybe in the next five to eight years. So five to eight years is a very interesting window because an index fund has significant risk for you in the shorter term, has much less risk outside of 10 years, but is something that would create a level of risk that may not make you feel comfortable over a window of five to eight years. So what I would suggest to you is half a loaf, that if your goal is to spend this money in five to eight years, that you do half of it into a straight like total stock market index fund or something, uh, you know, cousin to that, and the other half into the boring savings account or cd at an online bank okay because that way you mitigate some of the risk historically people would say in the situation you described that you would go into what's known as a balanced index fund where you'd be a mix of stocks and bonds but mm-hmm. bonds and stocks have uh double they have risk together now where they used to have risk where one balanced the other And right now, that's not as true. And that's why I like the idea of you accepting the puny return on half the money you're putting aside in savings or CDs and the other half into the index fund. So you reduce the risk of a down market. You also reduce what you get in an up market, but you don't want to take on 100% risk with the time window you've got. Right. That makes a lot of sense. 
So do you, um, do you know ask- how to find those best rates online? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I know that you have posted uh, several articles on your website about them, too. Great. And you said you had a follow on question. Yes. So I'm also a federal employee, so I have a thrift savings plan. And so one idea that I had, if I wanted to put all of the money in an index fund, would be taking out a TSP loan and then using the index fund down the road, maybe when the market is doing better in 10 years or even further to pay that back. Is that something that you would recommend or it would be safer to... I, I don't Balance. like people using uh, 401k money or TSP money as like a piggy bank for a loan, even for a home, but it's common that people do it. I think that what happens is when you do that, it's really easy in the future to say, well, this is an exception too. I'd like to borrow against it. And I'd rather you uh, compartmentalize your money even if it might be slightly more efficient to borrow from the TSP. I'd rather you leave the TSP for its intended purpose, and you're lucky to have TSP, to build money for your long-term financial security and retirement and save the money outside of that for the purpose of buying a home. There are others that might disagree with that, but that's where I feel the most comfortable. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our website, Clark.com, and our bargain site, ClarkDeals.com. So I have an uh, exercise obsession. It's been something that's been part of my life since I was a late teenager, that I've always been, uh, to a fault, obsessive with exercise. And it has served me well, except when I injure myself. But the amount of exercise I do is beyond reason for most people. I average, over the last, oh, eight months, I've averaged 21,100 steps a day in a typical year. I average more like 17,500 steps a day. That's a lot. I mean, I average uh, over these many months, I've been averaging about 11 miles a day of activity, walking, walking and running, uh, you know, working out on machines where you can measure distance, that kind of thing. And absolutely unnecessary. And I know there's a point at which there's not really meaningful health benefits and a lot of us who are sedentary know in our hearts that we really need to exercise more but we're just not getting around to it certainly not the ridiculous amount i do so i was particularly interested in a study that went on for 14 years it was reported on in the british medical journal and 
it involved following 44,000 men and women and tracked, not what they said they did, but tracked their actual activity as best they could. There was both self-reporting and uh, follow-up to see what people were really doing. And to try to figure out, could you bend the curve on life expectancy by people exercising? And how much did they really need to exercise? So what they found was that for a typical person, uh, roughly 30 to 40 minutes a day of modest exercise, walking, whatever, would make a big difference because they followed people long enough to see, you know, mortality risk and all that, that that will make a big difference in lifespan, not even to mention your general health by getting out there and doing something. They even found 11 minutes per day of what they call MVPA. What is M? Moderate something physical activity, I guess, that 11 minutes a day would have beneficial effects. And so who among us could not spend 11 minutes a day being active? I would say that there's really no one among us who couldn't. It's all about getting the idea in your head. And so the important thing is for you to take away the message that we have more control, and this is what they found in this, they call this a, a, a meta sample when you have 44,000 people in a sample where you've been following many of them for 14 years, that what they really know is that doing modest physical activity, we're not talking about going out and trying to run a marathon or running really fast or anything like that, that modest activity will improve your lifespan significantly. Larry's with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Larry, you have a mortgage question for me. I do, Clark. Uh, whether I should do a, uh, a reverse mortgage or a regular mortgage, I know you've spoke really badly about reverse mortgages, but I like the idea of no payments. Right. So reverse mortgages become appropriate when you're pretty much out of other ways to pay for your life. Do you own your home free and clear or do you still have a mortgage on it? I do, Clark. I own my home and I'm retired. I have a retirement say uh, I mean I have retirement for my company, also social security. I had a four fifty seven account retirement, but my wife and I blew through it pretty quick when I retired. Oh, I'm sorry. So are you finding that each month you're struggling to live the life that you'd like to? Just to do more things, to travel more, things like that. The house, all those are easy to take care of. So, and a few, a few uh, credit card bills. Okay. So if you do a reverse mortgage, I, I use a pretty simple back-of-the-envelope way to think about it. You'll usually have expenses involved in making that loan happen that can add up to as much as 10% of the amount of money you're borrowing against the value of the house. Well, I, I did check with a credit union, no name, of course, and 
I got a really, really low interest rate, under 4%. And uh, say if I wanted, I'm just ballparking, 150000 out of my house, it's worth about three fifty. My payments are $1,000 a month. The only thing I was worried about is if I die, will my wife be able to handle it? So with a, a proper reverse mortgage, you don't ever have to pay back what you borrow. Okay. See, with a real reverse mortgage, what happens is the house pays you every month instead of you paying a lender. So is that the best or... or a Home equity line of credit? Or refinancing the house. So, if the idea... I know a refinance rate was was really good. Sure. But the idea is you don't have anybody you're worrying about inheriting that house, right? Well, my sons will get it, and I guess if they want to keep it, they'd have to pay off whatever came on the reverse. Because an alternative potentially is for your sons, are they of means, could they afford to lend you money against it, and then that would be money that you would already owe them when they inherited the house? Yeah, I could do that, sure. So, yeah, they're in good shape. Yeah, so if the idea is for you to have more money so you can live a more comfortable life, I think you should involve your kids and see if there's a role they can get involved with in providing the extra funding you need with the understanding and intention that they get the house when you're not going to live there anymore. Aaron's with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Aaron, you have a 14-year-old who wants to invest. Is that right? Yes, it is, Clark. And uh, how did your 14-year-old get interested in investing? Well, we brought up the option to him, and he's always sort of been uh, interested in money, and he loves to save his money and see it grow. So we thought this was something that could last long-term for him and allow him to learn a little bit before he has to really, really start investing. I love that. And, you know, now you can buy... Um, small amounts of many different stocks, the way stock buying now operates, and uh, your son can trade as he wishes, commission-free, so he can learn a lot, uh, make mistakes, make good decisions, and how much money is he going to have to do this with? Well, we haven't really gotten that far. We're trying to determine what would even be a good starting amount. We really, I don't know much about it. I just put my, you know, investments in my work 401k. So we don't really know what our options are or what would be a good starting amount for a 14-year-old. The easiest is you can go into a Schwab office or a Fidelity office. You know, you know, those two big investment companies. Uh Uh-huh. So, I mean, you're in Massachusetts. You're in Fidelity's backyard. Yes. Uh, so you could go to a, take him to a Fidelity Investment Center, open an account for him. You have to be the custodian. And then he can start, put in some money, and then he can start trading. And you okay. can let him, give him as much autonomy and freedom as you want, or you can restrict what he does based on how you feel he's handling the responsibility. Okay. Would you suggest any sort of like learning tools? Yes, or I love friendly? I love humbledollar.com. I recommend it to okay. adults too. Good. Okay. And Humble Dollar has specific sections on investing 
and talks about the strategy of building portfolios, how you do that, what you look for. They even have something called Portfolio Builder and walks you through how you do that stuff. It's really geared towards adults, but it would be great for him at 14 to get the fundamentals of investing and get to it. And I want him to go to an actual Fidelity office with you and be there opening an account and make it as, I mean, it'll be completely real versus something you do on an app or online. He'll do stuff online, but I want him to open it in person so it, it just completely immerses him in what's involved in becoming an investor. Scott's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Scott. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Scott. You got a question for me about something that's become very popular again, a form of borrowing that nobody was really doing for about 10 years. What is it? I recently initiated a home equity line of credit, and I'm going to do some fixes around the house and knock out my credit card. Uh, then I heard you talk about some changes to the credit reporting systems uh, relative to personal loans or secure loans. And so how, I was wondering how that might affect my credit score. So in the case of you doing a HELOC, that should not harm you the same way a personal loan would. The new scoring yep. model that's only going to be phased in over time, what's called FICO 10 and 10T, will look at somebody who's been running credit card debt and then takes out personal loans to move the credit card debt to, and that's looked at as a big danger signal for somebody ultimately defaulting on debt because it means they're wheezing on the amount of debt they have. Now, taking out a HELOC to essentially refinance credit card debt, did you do that because the interest rate was lower or the payment was easier? Well, the, the interest is lower, um, and that was that was really it. I just had a couple of interests that I wanted to do, and I figured that uh, the, the lower interest rate, if I was going to be using any money, uh, would be, you know, it makes sense to go with a home equity loan. Um, so you did loan or line of credit, because a line of credit floats, and a loan is a fixed rate. It's a uh, line of credit, okay. uh, the way I understood it. Yeah, that's what, right. I, that's what I talked to the bank about. All right. So with the line of credit, they're not going to put you on a strict payment schedule to pay that credit card balance that you've moved over down to zero. And so you can actually, if it just sits there, you can end up with more total interest paid than you would even on a much higher interest rate credit card. So I would make a deal with yourself where you set out how much you're going to pay per month to wipe out those credit cards now that you're having to service much less interest per month and the money you put towards it can go towards principal. That makes sense, yeah. In terms of an effect on your credit score, there's a minor hit to your credit score for having done another application for credit. And as long as you have now reduced, reduced the amount of your available credit you're using on your credit cards... That should, on that part of your credit, actually be a positive that raises your score. So the net effect may be a higher credit score than you had before. So I, I wouldn't okay. fret about that. I just worry about the other part, and that is that you don't keep putting off paying off the balance and have discipline and a plan to pay it off. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you get to hear producer Joel Ask a question that you've posted at clark.com slash ask. 
Who asked you a question, Joel? Clark, this one's from Linda. She wants to know, why is it better to buy a smart TV, the Roku version, than other versions of smart TVs? That is a great question, and that's only an opinion of mine, not necessarily fact. I find that the Roku system is easier to use than the ones that the manufacturers put in their own TVs, like uh, the one Vizio does, or the one Samsung does, or any of the major TV manufacturers, that Roku is, has simplified it so much and made it so easy for you to have programming. Plus, Roku offers a lot of free programming that you only get if you have a Roku TV or a Roku device added to your TV. So it's what's known as network effect, where a company builds so much strength in its product and service and the ease of use that they become dominant in the market. And at least for now, in my opinion, that's what Roku is. Clark, we got one from Curtis, and he says, if I retire before I'm 70, but I wait until I'm 70 to start collecting Social Security, don't those years with lower income adversely affect the calculation for my disbursement? Wonderful question. So the way Social Security is figured is it's your highest 35 years. So if you're in your 60s, you probably worked plenty of years to get 35 together. So if you retire before you start taking money, those years that you're not earning in your 60s just don't even figure into the equation. It would be the same calculation as it would be otherwise. You won't get hurt. All right. And Logan says, I own five rental properties in Central California. These are single family residences built between 2004 and 2007. And I have them managed by a local property management company. But do you have thoughts? Okay. Wait, wait, wait. You've got to be brilliant. You <laughs> bought all these during the bust and they're not even old properties. So they don't have a lot of things that have already worn out on them. Yeah. Sounds like Logan bought at the right time for sure. Wow. So, but he wants to know about preventative maintenance and when he should, any tips that you have, Clark? on how you should go about maintaining these residences and specifically something like a roof inspection. How often should something like that be done too? So roof inspection, the roofs hopefully were constructed in a way that you'll get um, close to 30 years use out, the, out of them. So hopefully you got some real clock time to run before even the first roof would be at a point that you're having real problems. Usually it manifests itself where you'll see uh, a stain on the ceiling on the highest floor in a property, and then you'll know, oops, I got a leak going on. I got to go deal with it. It's usually a, a reactive thing instead of active. But for other things, every time you turn over a tenant, you want to check, make sure filters are up to date, that systems are good. I think it's good to have an evaluation of your uh, heating and air conditioning system at turnover of a tenant. And since you got five properties, set some money aside every month from those properties for maintenance. Um, things go wrong, as you know. Tenants can be tough on a place, and you got to have some money when something does go wrong with a minor or major system in the house. And I'm just so excited for you. The revenue stream you have has got to be so great for you for your long-term future. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. 
Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.